0: Post Reports is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post...
2: How are you Hernandez from the Washington
0: Post. This is Cleve with the Washington
1: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 19th. Today, the rights of immigrant children in therapy sessions, coronavirus and the global economy, and the American dream in Finland.
3: Sir, I've just been listening to your
2: attorneys present your request for bond. Kevin Yuseida is a teenager who came to this country from Honduras when he was 17. The attorney for the government has just a few questions for you. He grew up in Honduras. His parents abandoned him, and his grandmother who raised him died when he was 12. And after that, the gang MS-13 took over his house and forcibly recruited him into the gang.
3: In Honduras, you were involved with MS-13 from, was it 2012 to 2015?
2: When he was in Honduras, he was forced to run errands for the gang.
3: And you also sold drugs for MS-13 as something called a traca?
2: They would tie him to a tree, they would hit him and laugh at him, and they forced him to witness the murder of his cousin. And after that, he decided to flee. He was 17, he took his sister, and he spent three months getting to the U.S. border. I'm Hannah Dreyer, I'm on the National Enterprise team at The Post.
1: So what is his current immigration status?
2: Like, where is he at in the process? Kevin is in this very strange situation where he's been granted asylum. He's been certified as a victim of severe human trafficking, and he's been ordered released twice. But ICE just keeps appealing and appealing his case. So even though he has all of these protections now, he's still actually in detention.
1: And what is the reason why ICE is arguing for him to be deported and not to be able to stay in the U.S.? It actually all comes down to his
2: therapy sessions.
3: I also would like to point to the document from Gustavo Ruffet, the psychologist who met with him back in August. Um, He did note that the respondent had told him that he used to get angry very easily. He had some trouble learning to take orders. Um, On page six in particular, he noted that he scored high on a scale of autonomic hyperarousal symptoms. When he
2: crossed the border, he was taken to meet with a therapist in a migrant child detention center. And that's a mandatory thing that all kids who are in these detention centers have to do. And the therapist said, this is your chance to tell us your story. Everything will be confidential. He told her that he had been forcibly recruited into a gang and he had seen violence. He had been forced to sell drugs and then he had fled. And the therapist then passed those notes up, and ICE has used them half a dozen times to argue for his continued detention. So every time he's granted release, granted asylum, ICE goes back to those notes. Kevin happened to come to the U.S. during a time that the government was really cracking down on people who had any kind of criminal history, any kind of gang history in their home countries, And so ICE is arguing that Kevin is a danger to the community because he was involved in these things. He can't be released. They're saying it's not safe.
1: That even though he talked about these experiences from the perspective of things that he was forced to witness and awful things that happened to him, that they're interpreting it as evidence of him partaking in bad things or or being a member of a gang that was doing the bad things. Exactly. But the thing that I don't understand is that I thought that something like a therapy session was supposed to be private, that there is like a doctor-patient privilege in one of those situations where whatever you say to your therapist can't be released without your permission. Right.
2: So most people assume that when you're talking to a therapist... The rule is that unless you talk about hurting yourself or hurting another person, everything you say is going to be confidential. And that's more or less how it's explained to these kids in the migrant child detention centers. But it's a special situation because the federal government is essentially acting as these kids' parents. And so... Therapists can share these notes with the federal government. It's as if they're sharing it with their parents. And then the federal government can do whatever it wants with the notes, including using them in courtrooms.
1: And has this always been the case that the federal government has been using these therapy notes as a form of essentially prosecution or deportation? So this has always been an
2: option. But what's changed is that ICE and the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is the agency that's in charge of these shelters, has decided to do more, to work together, to try to identify potentially dangerous children. For most of the history of this agency that runs the child shelters, that agency was a pure child welfare agency. So that agency didn't do anything that had to do with law enforcement. Their job was to take custody of the kids who came across the border and watch out for them until they could be released or until they turned 18. And that was really all they did. But in recent years, the Office of Refugee Resettlement has started working more closely with ICE. I talked to Scott Lloyd, who was in charge of the Office of Refugee Resettlement in 2017 when these changes started. And I asked him, well, how did you justify using therapist notes in this way? And what he said was there was just so much fear about criminals and gang members
1: coming across the border that he felt like he had to react. So this isn't just a thing that's happening in Kevin's case. This has happened to many kids that have come under ISIS care.
2: Immigration lawyers say that they're seeing this more and more all around the country. So in Kevin's case, something that he said the day after he came across the border has been used against him for two and a half years. But there are also cases where therapists have misunderstood what a child said or a child has said something and taken it back. These
1: therapy sessions, are they, I assume that they would be conducted in Spanish.
2: They're conducted in Spanish, but the language abilities of the therapists really vary. One child told a therapist that his brother was wanted for murder in El Salvador, and the therapist interpreted that as he was wanted for murder, and the kid was transferred that same day to high-security detention. Another kid said that he had killed 50 people, which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in history, and he took it back. He said he'd been boasting and he felt scared, but it went in his file, and it's been used to put his asylum claim on hold.
1: Well, that's the thing about talking to kids and interviewing kids as part of therapy is that, like, kids are not always reliable narrators of their own lives. And things that they share, it seems like there are a lot of problems that are brought up by making that part of their deportation hearings. Right. So professional organizations
2: say that while this may be legal, it's not ethical, in part because of this issue that children are coming across the border with severe trauma And the things that they say shouldn't be used as criminal confessions, in part because children internalize trauma in lots of different ways. So one case that I was told about involves a 16-year-old who saw his friend murdered in front of him in his home country. And he then told his therapist that he was having nightmares about this murder. He felt like he committed the murder. And that was recorded as This kid disclosed that he is a murderer. Hmm. But the way trauma works, things can become very confusing, especially for young people who are dealing with these really intense emotions. And
1: so these therapists who are talking to kids who are in the care of the federal government Do they know that discussions that are happening in therapy are being passed along to the people who are trying to deport these kids?
2: You know, when I started this reporting, I was shocked that therapists were willing to go along with this. And I thought, wow, these therapists must be making really complicated bargains with themselves. But the more I reported, the more I saw that therapists really don't understand what's happening. So they're telling kids things like, think of me as your lawyer or everything you say to me will be private but that's not true right but they don't know that that's not true for the most part so they think that they are writing notes
1: to go into the kids file that will just stay at the shelter That theoretically, if another therapist were to talk to them afterward, that it's helpful to have this record on file so that a later therapist can see what the discussions were previously.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And there's a lot of reasons to do that, so that a kid doesn't have to talk about the same traumatic experience over and over again, so that everybody can be on the same page. And what they don't understand is that those notes actually go up to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is in charge of all shelters nationwide, and that the Office of Refugee Resettlement then gives the notes to ICE to be used in court.
1: Are therapists starting to realize the role that they play in the deportation hearings and trying to take action to prevent these kinds of notes from becoming part of those hearings?
2: I think they are, just very recently. So I talked to some therapists who are now keeping two sets of notes, one for themselves and one to be shared with the government. And I talked to some therapists who keep things that they think are going to be overly disturbing out of notes. So, like, if a kid draws a really graphic picture of something in their head, they'll just keep that secret. But for the most part, the therapists that I talked to were really shocked. And I talked to one of the therapists who worked with Kevin, and when he got to the second high security center, he again was required to talk to therapists. And he said things like he felt frustrated. He felt like he was going to explode. And those notes then also got traded to ICE. And those notes have also been used
1: again and again in proceedings against him. Because someone who says that they're frustrated and feeling like they're going to explode, that you could interpret that as a person who could commit violence.
2: Right. So ICE says, This person has trouble controlling their anger. He said one time, two months into his detention, that he felt like he was going to explode. And they just keep coming back to that phrase. So I spoke to the therapist who was at that high security detention center. And he said he had no idea what was happening. And he was sickened to hear that Kevin was still detained. He since quit the shelter. But most of his colleagues, he said, have no idea. Did you get a chance to talk to Kevin himself? I've talked to Kevin almost every week, for months now. And he struggles because he doesn't feel comfortable talking to anybody in detention. So he says he feels very lonely. He has a team of law school students who are representing him, and they're the main people who he talks to. But at this point, he's just been so burned by trusting people who said that they were going to help him and said that things were going to be confidential that he just doesn't feel comfortable
1: talking to almost anyone. Do you get the sense that he feels regretful about having been so open about his traumas when he first came to the US?
2: He does regret talking about what had happened in his home country, because it's the thing that's kept him detained for two and a half years. On the other hand, he likely wouldn't have been granted trafficking victim status. He might not have gotten asylum if he hadn't disclosed what had
1: happened.
3: sinceramente, la verdad, porque ellos me dijeron que me iban a ayudar y que tenía que ser sincero y que entre más sincero.
1: The
2: other thing is, Kevin came to the U.S. with a lot of trauma. He saw a lot of violence. And he said that initially talking to therapists helped him feel better. It felt like he was unburdening himself and talking about the worst things that he had seen for the first time in his life, and it felt great. So I think he really wishes that he could still be getting some kind of help.
1: but I think this also brings up this like central question about what is the government's relationship to this person that he is in their care and they're supposed to be essentially his parents in this situation, and they have access to his therapy records for that reason, but they're also essentially his prosecutors and It feels like they're playing both roles at the same time. It's so complicated.
2: The Office of Refugee Resettlement says it's still a child welfare agency. It doesn't do law enforcement things. But they are passing these notes to a law enforcement agency, to ICE. And so the professional associations and the therapists themselves say that that's made things very complicated. And the effect has really been to make things much harder for kids who are fleeing violence.
1: So what's going to happen to Kevin?
2: The judge seems very sympathetic. Every time she sees Kevin, she sort of encourages him. She has granted him asylum already. That was appealed. Now she's deciding if she can grant him asylum again. And his lawyers are also asking that he be released while all of this legal process is going on. But ICE has said that they consider him a danger because of his past And so he is waiting, and he's been waiting for nearly three years, which is a long time for a teenager. It's very strange because one part of the federal government has certified him as a trafficking victim, has said, we believe you. You were forced to do these things as a child. You fled. You're a victim. And then the other part of the federal government, ICE, is saying, no, it doesn't matter. You were affiliated with this gang in your home country. And so you're a criminal who we are going to fight as hard as we can to keep detained. So it's sort of a question now of whether he can keep hanging on as the judge, who seems to really want to grant him legal status, works through what she can do.
1: Hannah Dreyer is a national enterprise reporter at The Post.
0: China is the biggest producer and exporter of goods of anyone in the world. Every country really is dependent on something from China. Now, the United States imports close to $500 billion of things from China, but China exports another $2 trillion of things to other countries. I'm Damian Paletta, economics editor of The Washington Post.
1: Damian says the coronavirus outbreak is upending global markets and disrupting production in China. Workers are staying home and some factories have temporarily shut down.
0: Initially, it felt like it might just be a few days or a week and we could wait it out. It would be fine. Now, as weeks turn into months, it seems like the impact is going to be more and more acute. And that's why this, the impact of this virus is starting to be felt even in some major, major, huge American companies. Even companies like Apple are being affected by the outbreak. We're hearing now that Apple's warning that they're not going to be able to get their iPhone shipments out as quickly as they thought. Nike, Puma, Adidas, where, you know, a lot of products are made in China are warning that there's going to be an impact on them. 15% of products at Walmart come from China. And you have that percent of products in Target and other companies, too. Eventually, if this continues, there is going to be an impact on them.
1: So you you brought... Some playing cards. Yes, I did.
0: I brought something for you. And these playing cards are actually made in the USA. I was kind of excited to know. (laughs) But I thought there was, it was really hard to explain on any scale how much stuff comes from China. So I bought a deck of cards and I went and spent some time yesterday going through this deck and writing down, you know, different examples of things that come from China. And it's on the scale. Okay, so here, pick a card. Okay. And I'll take two as well.
1: Oh, wow. You wrote on the cards. Okay, so this is a five of clubs, and it is laminated wood.
0: $5.6 billion in laminated wood. Wow. That China exports every year.
1: And so that's $5.6 billion of laminated wood that, theoretically, if the outbreak continues, would not be manufactured and would not be exported.
0: Right. So right now we know that the exports are down about 20% from China, and which is you know amazing when you think that they export $2.5 trillion a year. So if it's down 20% in the first month, if that continues... We're talking, you know, there could be a huge contraction in the exports of laminated wood. That means the cost of those products for Americans go up a lot. A lot of companies that depend on those, you know, or, or there's like this ripple effect throughout the economy. Laminated wood is not something that you on Saturday morning say, I'm going to go buy laminated wood, right? But it's something that's kind of part of, you know, houses and factories and building and construction and things like that.
1: And what's interesting about this is that it really makes it clear how interdependent our economy is with China's economy. Because what we're seeing is not just places that produce products in China that import them here and sell them. A lot of businesses that produce products here in the U.S. still rely on raw materials from China. And so even businesses here can't do their maximum business without having that flow coming in from China.
0: So yesterday I went to CVS and there's in the pharmaceutical aisle, there's a sign that says we're out of masks and gloves. I mean, this is 8000 miles away. Right. There's been a lot of those products come from China and there's this like surge in people that want to buy them. And so, you know, as this goes on longer and people learn more and more about the supply chain, these aren't just little knickknacks and trinkets. These are like big pieces of machinery. You know, a lot of the things that go into the drugs that we buy, you know, for medicine, the components come from China. And so when you look at that and you look at steel rods and you look at, you know, TV receivers and digital cameras, it's a huge part of the economy, a huge part of the consumer base that's all wrapped up in this global supply chain.
1: And I wonder how this is also exacerbated by what has already been going on for the past couple of years in terms of the trade war with China.
0: One of the lessons from the trade war was that U.S. companies needed to be thinking about ways to purchase their material from other places. So if there's going to be higher cost to import goods, a widget from China, maybe you should get your widget from Singapore or Vietnam or even, you know, create your widget here in the United States. That's really hard to do quickly. And unfortunately, these companies are now in this situation where they don't know how much longer this is going to go on. So maybe they say, fine, we'll go start buying widgets in Vietnam, but you know, it, what if this whole coronavirus thing is over in two weeks and then we've spent like $100 million with some new factory? Maybe we should just wait. And when they wait, they stop investing. And then that's when the kind of the global economy starts to seize up. So now they're in this awful position of not knowing what's going to happen. They thought the trade war stuff was behind them. And literally the moment that that, you know, trade pact was signed, things started getting worse and worse with the coronavirus.
1: And do you feel like the fact that all these companies are in this position of scrambling to figure out what exactly to do, that that like should there have been better planning in advance of this, that there should have been some gaming out of what happens if we cannot rely on China the way that we have been historically?
0: We had a story that ran on the front on Sunday about this uh, Texas company that makes medical supply masks. The only major medical supply mask company left in the United States and they can make around 600,000 masks a day. Now, normally that's plenty because there's so many masks that come in from Mexico and China that can be produced much at a much lower cost. But in a situation like this, when there's a huge run on surgical masks, you know, they could make, you know, 5 million masks a day and it wouldn't be enough. But what do you do? Do you wait for a pandemic? You know, do you kind of create a business so that it's ready when there's a pandemic? Or do you run a normal business and go by the normal supply and demand kind of economics? That's the situation they're in now. If we have all these domestic companies that make things like they're made in China, but there's not the demand because there's the cost is too high, then they'll just never survive. And that's what we saw happen over the last couple decades. But you run into a situation like this where there is kind of a crisis and there is fear and people don't know what to do. You can't just go out and like build a new factory in Bethesda that's going to make things that are kind of low cost, you know, equivalents of what's in China. And so you're in this situation where just the economy is kind of paralyzed and we don't know like how long this is going to take on for.
1: Damien Paletta is an economics editor with The Post. Now, one more thing. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls after Iowa and New Hampshire. And part of the reason for so much of his support is the one message that he has been hammering since the beginning of his political career. I can hear the Republican attack ad right now. He wants America to look more like Scandinavia. That's right. That's right. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong when you have more income and wealth equality? What's wrong when they have uh, a stronger middle class in many ways than we do, a higher minimum wage uh, than we do, when they're stronger on the environment than we do?
3: During his presidential campaigns and for many years before, Bernie Sanders has leaned very heavily into this idea that the United States should follow the social democratic models that we see in Northern Europe and in the Nordic
1: countries. In countries in Scandinavia, like Denmark, Norway, Sweden. I want to thank the Finnish people for giving us a vision and a model. Our support of democratic socialism. Would the people of Denmark pay for healthcare when they go to the doctor? Sanders supports bringing over what we see there. Ishan Thoreau writes about foreign affairs for The Post. And while Bernie Sanders has become synonymous with this idea of the Nordic model, things like free college and universal health care and a sweeping social safety net, Ishan was curious about how Nordic people feel about that.
3: Last month, I was in Davos at the World Economic Forum. And alongside my colleague Heather Long, uh, The Post's economics correspondent, as well as our boss, Marty Barron, uh, we interviewed uh, Finland's Prime Minister, Sana Marin, and I posed to her this exact question. On the left in the United States, there is a lot of aspirational discussion. What do you think of the Nordic model and your social system uh, being sort of inserted into the American domestic political conversation? And she responded with a, a rather emphatic statement.
1: We feel that the Nordic model is a success story. Mm-hmm. And I feel that uh, the American dream can be achieved best in the Nordic countries.
3: Her argument was that basically anybody from any background in Finland is given the chance to make, make what they want in their life because of the state's great healthcare and education.
1: We have very good education system. We have good health care, social care system that uh, everybody can become anything. basically, she's saying that all these things that we think of as part of the Nordic model. they're not that different from the American dream because of
3: the level of parity in experience that anybody from any generation has in that country. They're all put on a strong footing going forward. Trump and his allies like to paint. Bernie's position as that of a socialist takeover of the American state. But ever since Sanders has started campaigning about this, there has been, within the United States, a significant debate between policymakers and wonks on the center and right and those on the left about the applicability of the Nordic model in the United States. At the end of the day, what folks like Marin and Sanders would point to is that the average Finnish middle class household pays a fraction of what the average American middle class household does in childcare, in health care for education and presumably in Sanders point of view uh, redressing that and aligning the average American household's experience to closer that of the Finnish household's experience would go a long way in redressing inequities in the American Republic.
1: Ishan Tharoor writes about foreign affairs for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to catch up on recent episodes, check out our episode archive at postreports.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email list so you can get a heads up whenever a new episode comes out. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington
0: Post.